You are listening to audio from First Baptist Church in Fort Walton Beach. If you would like more resources or to watch our service online, please visit fbcfwb.org. Listen in as Pastor Wade helps us abide in Christ and advance the gospel through the teaching and the proclamation of God's Word. I trace my love for history back to 10th grade. I had U.S. history with Mr. Ron Roderick. And Mr. Roderick was one of those amazing teachers, the ones that you remember. We didn't just talk about dates and facts. He would actually tell us interesting stories about history and how things transpired and unfolded. And I remember being in class just mesmerized as he gave us some, some deeper insight into the events that we call history. I've always loved the stories that that comprise uh, our understanding of what has happened and shape our perspective on what is coming. Well, this morning, we're going to see how the Lord gave a vision to Daniel to give him a big picture view of history. And he doesn't use a story, per se, to capture Daniel's attention he gives him some really frightening imagery so that he understands what is coming. As we look back on this story, we see that this vision that God gives Daniel is the story of human history. And we see it from that that 30,000 foot view, big picture perspective. And it gives us a a, a way to frame what happened and what is coming. And so I want you to keep that in mind as you turn to Daniel chapter 7. We are continuing our study line by line, verse by verse, this wonderful Old Testament book, Daniel chapter 7. We'll begin reading in verse 1. Daniel chapter 7, verse 1. When you found your place, I want to ask you this morning if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Daniel 7 verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream... And told the sum of the matter. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we're so grateful that we serve and worship a faithful God. Because of your faithfulness, we have strength for today. And bright hope for tomorrow. And Lord, even this vision we're going to study this morning. Given to Daniel thousands of years today ago. Gives us strength for today. And bright hope for tomorrow. So would you speak to us through your word. 
apply the message of Scripture to our hearts by the power and presence of the Spirit, that we might be transformed. Have your way in our midst, and we'll thank you and praise you for that grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. When we began our study of the book of Daniel, I told you that this book divides into two even parts. And not only does the book divide into two parts, the book is comprised of two different genres of literature. So we have walked together through chapters 1 through 6, and we've seen that this section of Daniel is narrative. It tells a story of Daniel. It tells a story of his courage in the face of ungodliness, his desire to stay true to the Lord when surrounded by those who were threatening him uh, if, he, if he did stay true to the Lord. You might say the, the first half of the book of Daniel is about courage. He was a man of courageous faith. His colleagues, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were courageous in their faith. So the first half of the book is narrative. The second half of the book is apocalyptic in genre, in that we see some some information given to Daniel about the future and how the future would unfold. And it's given to him in some, some rather striking ways. We'll see this morning that some information is given to him through uh, a dream and through a vision. We'll see some other dreams and visions through the remainder of the book as well. But it is apocalyptic in uh, nature. Now notice there it says in verse 1, This is the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. As we studied chapters 1 through 6, we saw that Daniel lived under Babylonian rule. He was taken exiled by the Babylonians from, uh, from Israel back to that uh, land. He was in captivity to the Babylonians, and he served well the government of the Babylonians. But the Babylonians were overthrown by the Persians, and he served the Persian kings as well. Well, this is a flashback back to his... Babylonian days, when the Babylonians were in control and Belshazzar was the king. And it's during that time that Daniel had a vision. Now, I believe that chapter 7 of Daniel is the most important chapter in the entire book. It's not the most well-known chapter, but it's the most important chapter in the book because of the broad sweep of history from God's perspective that we are given it's, it's important. And I would even go so far to say that chapter 7 of Daniel is one of the most important theological chapters in the entire Old Testament. This is a critical passage of Scripture. J.F. Walvoord says it like this, The vision of Daniel, this vision of Daniel in chapter 7, provides the most comprehensive and detailed prophecy of future events to be found anywhere in the Old Testament. And so it is striking in that it covers so much territory. The vision that, that Daniel's given covers uh, human history from his time living in Babylon all the way to the end times. And so there's a lot for us to study today. It's the, the scope of this vision is breathtaking. And so I want to show you three lessons from this vision as we see what the vision was and see what the interpretation of this vision is. Is three lessons from this vision. Number one, we're talking about the big picture of history. The nations will rage. You can take that to the bank. The nations will rage. It says there in verse two, after 
Daniel writes down the dream and tells the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. Now, we're about to see that this vision corresponds to Nebuchadnezzar's visions that Daniel translated or interpreted in chapter 2. It's different imagery, but the same meaning is found in both visions. And we're going to see that the beasts here that rise up out of the great sea represent empires. So each beast represents a different empire and different uh, portion of human history. So look what it says there in verse 3. These four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then I looked, as I looked, its wings were plucked off. It was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of man was given to it. He speaks of this first beast being a lion with eagle's wings. This would have been quite a, a, a sight to see in his dream. But if this vision corresponds with Nebuchadnezzar's vision, and it does, we'll see the interpretation later, it, this lion with eagle's wings is a picture of Babylon. That was the, the empire that was ruling when Daniel received this vision under the, the rule of King Belshazzar. This is Babylon. And some people believe that when it says there that this lion had its wings plucked off, it was lifted up from the ground, made to stand on feet on two feet like a man, the mind of a man was given to it. Some people believe that's a reference to, to Nebuchadnezzar being humbled when he was taken out to the wilderness and lived like a wild beast. His wings were plucked. But it speaks there of Babylon being a nation which ruled and reigned, but having some definite weaknesses. Then it mentions a second beast in verse 5. Behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. This bear, the second beast, corresponds to the kingdoms that overthrew Babylon. The kingdoms were the Medes and the Persians. That's why it says that this bear was raised up on one side. The, the sides of the bear were different. Probably speaking of the fact that the Persians were more powerful than the Medes. They united together to overthrow Babylon, but one nation was stronger than the other. And it says there that this bear has three uh, ribs in its mouth. There were three major nations among Babylon, Lydia, uh, and what was the other, another nation in that area that the, that the, um, the Medo-Persians conquered. But this bear represents the Medo-Persians. Then in verse 6, After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. This third beast, again, very interesting to, to look at, a leopard with four wings on its back, represents the Greeks. After the, the Medo-Persians ruled for a time, their empire ruled and reigned in that part of the world. Then the Greeks, uh, largely under the leadership of Alexander the Great, overthrew the 
Persians, and they were the ruling empire in that area. The four wings probably speak maybe of the the speed of the leopard. It was able to move quickly, and if you read about Alexander the Great, the amount of of land that he conquered by the time he was 32 years of age is breathtaking. He moved very, very quickly in conquering other nations. This is probably a reference to the Greeks. And it says the beast had four heads. When Alexander the Great died, his kingdom was divided into four different entities, which leads to the next beast. Verse 7. After this I saw in the night visions, behold, a fourth beast, terrifying, dreadful, exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth that devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. It had ten horns. This beast that was different than all the other beasts probably corresponds to the Roman Empire. This If this lines up with the interpretation given with Nebuchadnezzar's vision, this is the Roman Empire who would overthrow the Greeks. And notice there it says, It devoured and broke in pieces with iron teeth and stamped what was left of its feet. There was something especially terrifying about this Roman Empire. Scholars believe that the longevity of Rome surpassing the other three kingdoms is why this beast is seen as being different. Stephen Miller writes, Nations were crushed under the iron boot of the Roman legions. Its power was virtually irresistible. And then it says, I considered the horns, the ten horns, that probably speaks of ten different nations that come together under Roman rule. Ten horns. Behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn, this is going to be crazy, in the horn were eyes, like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. I believe this horn that talks speaks of a sinister leader who would rise up in the spirit of the Roman Empire during the end times. We're going to talk more about this sinister leader next week. Because the second half of chapter 7 talks about this sinister leader. I'll give you a little spoiler alert. The Antichrist. It's the Antichrist. That's what he's talking about here. And we're going to talk about that next week. But he's mentioned there's a horn with an eye that talks. That'll get your attention, right? But notice there, there, there is a, a, a historical view of what was coming that Daniel saw. And here's the takeaway. History records what this vision portrayed to Daniel. History records the rise and fall of many kings and kingdoms. When my two oldest boys were younger, it didn't matter where we were, wrestling would ensue at some point. They would begin to wrestle. And, and I remember uh, I would try to have you know, a little bit of time reading God's Word and praying with them at bedtime. And, and I'd sit them down on the bed and I'd begin to, I'd begin to, to read the Bible and, and uh, you know, try to have some spiritual time with my boys. And they would begin to wrestle and throw each other off the bed. And I would lose my mind and I'd find myself screaming with my Bible open. And, and, uh, and, and, but they're always, they're always wrestling, right? That's just, that's just built into boys. Boys wrestle. There, there's something innate in us, in humanity, listen, that wants to be king of the hill. Right? 
We want the high ground. And if someone comes on our high ground, we want to push them away, correct? And that, my friends, is human history. The powerful want to be king of the hill. And they'll do what's necessary, even overthrow other nations, bring about war to be king of the hill. And so what Daniel sees in this vision, and it, it frightens him, uh, it says there uh, in uh, the end of the ch- chapter, Daniel was greatly alarmed. My color changed, he, like he saw a ghost. I kept the matter in my heart when he gets the full picture of this vision. But Daniel was alarmed as he sees that human history would consist of one empire overthrowing another empire. There would be war after war after war, ruler after ruler after ruler, king after king after king, dictator after dictator after dictator, evil upon evil upon evil. And Daniel sees this broad brush of history and he's alarmed by this. And what do we learn? The nations will rage. By the way, the spirit of this vision is what we experience in today's time in 2023, right? Nations raging everywhere we look. So the first lesson from this vision is the nations will rage. Second lesson from this vision is this. God is in control. Christians understand this. The nations are raging. Times are tumultuous, but God is in control. Now look back with me in Daniel 7, verse 2. A little interesting insight I want to show you here. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Uh, The sea is used often throughout Scripture as imagery for chaos. The, the, The wind and the waves... The stormy sea is used all throughout the Bible to speak of the the, the chaos of human history. But notice what it says there. There's a really interesting insight that you you could miss if you read by it too quickly. He says, I saw in my vision by night, behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. That means that God is over the chaos. God is over. Ruling over human history. Sure, from our perspective, we see wind and we see waves and we see tumult and we see trouble and we see wars and we see suffering. But from God's perspective, He is overseeing all of human history, bringing it to His desired conclusion. And... This passage, the four winds of heaven, remind us of that. In fact, over in Psalm 89.9, the Bible says, You, speaking of God, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. God's in control of the chaos. And to reinforce this idea in this vision that Daniel is given, the scene shifts in verse 9. From tumultuous seas... Uh, human history, beast, empires, to the throne room of heaven. Look what it says there in verse 9. As I looked, as I looked. Now remember, he had just seen Babylon overthrown by the Medo-Persians. The Medo-Persians overthrown by the Greeks. Greeks overthrown by the Romans. Another horn that talks, speaking of a coming sinister leader. And then the scene shifts... 
to heaven. The throne room of heaven. He says, I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. He sees this this anthropomorphism, this theophany, this appearance of God. And and in this vision, God is given some human-like features so that that Daniel can understand some things about this God who is reigning over human history. In fact, there are five characteristics of the one seated on the throne that help us understand who God is. First of all, notice his title speaks of his eternality. It says there, Thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Who are the other thrones for? I'll tell you next week. But thrones are placed, and the Ancient of Days takes his seat. Notice that title, the Ancient of Days. That is a a title that refers to the reality that our God is eternal. He has no beginning. He has no ending. He has simply always existed and will always exist. As we sang earlier, He's the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is to come. Amen? He's eternal God. And so guess what? Because God existed before human history, because God created humanity and this earth, He can handle what's going on on this earth. He's the Ancient of Days. His title speaks of His eternality. His clothing speaks of His purity. Look what it says in verse 9. His clothing was white as snow. The, 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 The pure white here speaks of God's total unique moral majesty. It speaks of God's Moral excellence. It speaks of the reality, listen, that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. Aren't you glad that over this this tumult, over this raging sea we call history, there is one who is ruling and reigning and who always does the right thing. He's pure. His clothes are white. His clothing speaks of His purity. His hair speaks of his wisdom. Look what it says there. The hair of his head like pure wool. The Bible clearly says that that gray hair is a crown of glory because it speaks of someone's wisdom they've acquired over the years. And here it's applied to God. It says that his hair is white like wool. This speaks of God's Perfect wisdom, his breathtaking wisdom. God knows all. God understands what's going on. And listen, God knows what to do. You say, how do you solve the problems going on in this world? I have no clue. And you don't either. But God does. God knows what to do. God knows how to oversee all of this. God is wise. His throne speaks of his judgment. Look back in the text. His throne was fiery flames. Flames are often used as a picture of judgment. Its wheels were burning fire. And how do you know this is speaking of judgment? Look in verse 10. A stream of fire issued, came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him. It's ten thousand times ten thousand what that word is. 
and, and, and it says 10,000 times 10,000 served him, stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were open. The court sat in judgment. So the fire speaks of the reality that one day God will bring everyone to account with a consuming fire. Deuteronomy 4.24 says, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Isaiah 33.14 says, The sinners in Zion are afraid, trembling, as seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? In other words, you ought to take God seriously. He's judge. His throne consists of fiery flames. And then the books mentioned here in this scene... Speak of his memory. Look what it says there. The court said in judgment, the books were opened. This is a symbolic way to speak of the reality that God forgets nothing. There's a perfect recording of every deed, every thought, every action in human history. God sees all. God knows all. And all will be held to account. There's books here. That record the realities of human history. The book speaks of his memory. And so it's important to remember that as the nations rage, the Ancient of Days is enthroned in heaven, moving human history towards a glorious conclusion. And no matter how powerful a ruler is, no no matter how powerful a nation is, they will eventually answer to the living God. Look what it says in verse 11. I looked them, I looked them because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, its body destroyed, and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, empires, kings, dictators, as for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. This passage reminds us that God is overseeing human history. It reminds me of Psalm chapter 2 that says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart, cast away their cords from us. We don't want to obey God. We don't want to live for God. We don't want to recognize God. But what does God say? It says in Psalm 2, He who sits in the heavens laughs The Lord will hold them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. So here's what it means to be a Bible-believing Christian. When the sea of human history is raging, we can walk through that with peace. We can rest... Because we know that God is in control. Sinclair Ferguson says, Believers will always be able to look beyond what kings do to how God rules. Isn't that a good word for us today? I think about what's going on in the world. I think about what's going on in my own nation. And I find myself becoming anxious sometimes. And anxious filling my life as I think about what is, what is happening But then I realize and remember that God is in control and God is working. And human history will come to his desired conclusion. 
I've heard the illustration used before of a cruise ship. Just imagine for a moment that a cruise ship leaves the harbor in New York and is headed towards London. And the, the cruise ship is headed overseas. And on the cruise ship, people make decisions. There are good things that happen on the cruise ship, bad things that happen on the cruise ship. People rebel on the cruise ship against God. But guess what? When it's all said and done, the cruise ship will arrive at its destination. And this passage reminds us that no matter how people may rage against God, how nations may, may rage against one another, history is like a cruise ship. It's going to arrive at God's desired destination. Amen? But here's the question. What is that destination? Well, at least to the third point. History is heading somewhere. History is heading somewhere. Look what it says in verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He came to the Ancient of Days, was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This passage reminds us that history will culminate under one great king. That's where human history is headed. Now, who is this king? Well, first of all, note this king is divine. It says there in verse 13, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. In the Old Testament, there are about 70 passages that speak of one coming on the clouds or riding on the clouds. And every time you see it in the Old Testament, every time, it speaks of God, the Lord so there, is, there are overtones here of deity. If, if you get to ride on the clouds, you must be God, right? And this one that comes on the clouds is divine. And then in verse 14 it says, This one who comes on the clouds was given dominion that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. That word serve is not the basic word for serve like, you know, you... you if someone needs a glass of water, you take them a glass of water, you're serving them. That, that's not what this word means. Uh, this word translates something like um, to give reverence to or to pay respect to. This word is a word that means worship. All tribes, languages will be worshiping him. And what do the Ten Commandments say? The only one who is to be worshipped is who? God. So if this one who comes on the cloud is being worshipped, he must be who? God, divine. But also this king is human. Look what it says in verse 13. There came one like a son of man. This phrase, son of man, suggests that this king identifies with humanity. Even though this king is fully God, divine, riding on the clouds, receiving worship, he identifies in some special way with humans. Like me and like you. He's the son of man. So you say, who is this king? 
Who is the one who rides the clouds? Who is the one that identifies specifically with humanity? This king is Jesus. That's who this king is. And I don't want you to take my word for it. Jesus himself uses this passage of Scripture and applies it to himself. Jesus often identified himself as the Son of Man. Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man has not come to serve, but not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He calls himself the Son of Man. Matthew 16, 27 and 28. Matthew 19, 28. Matthew 24, 30. Matthew 25, 31. Jesus takes on this title of Son of Man. In other words, Jesus identifies with humanity. Say, how can Jesus identify with humanity? He was born to the Virgin Mary. He took on human flesh in her womb. So when he was born, he was fully human. Not only is Jesus fully human, he's fully divine. And he applied Daniel 7, 13, and 14 to himself. Listen to what it says in Mark chapter 14, 61 through 64. But he remained silent, made no answer when he was being accused by the religious leaders. He remained silent, made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ? Listen, the Son of the Blessed One. Are you the Son of God? Are you the promised Messiah? Are you the Christ? And Jesus said, I am. And listen to the verse he uses to support this claim. You'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. Now when Jesus said that, these religious leaders that knew their Bible and believed that Daniel 7 was one of the most important theological chapters in the entire Old Testament, they knew that when Jesus quoted Daniel 7, 13 and 14, he was applying that passage to himself, thus claiming to be God himself. And here's how they respond in verse 63. The high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. He's claiming to be God. It's blasphemy, they said. And they all condemned him as deserving death. So Jesus himself applies Daniel chapter 7 and the phrase Son of Man to his own life, person, ministry, and work. This king is Jesus. I want to take you back to the throne room for just a moment to make this point. This king will receive, and we're seeing him receive here, the reward of his obedience. Look back in verse 13. It says, Thrones were placed, ancient of days took his seat, his clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. So God is on his throne, there in the heavenly throne room. And then in verse 13, one comes into the throne room with the clouds of heaven. The one like the Son of Man. One who's being worshipped. And the Ancient of Days presents to him in verse 14 dominion, glory, a kingdom that will never be destroyed in which all peoples will worship him and adore him. Now here's my question. Daniel's seeing this vision. Throne room of heaven. Ancient of days, seated on his throne. And here comes one like the Son of Man riding on the clouds. Where was Jesus coming from? 
Where was he coming from? To receive this gift of an everlasting kingdom. I believe this is a picture. Watch this. This is a picture. Oh, this is good. I know what I'm about to say and it's good. You ready? This is a picture of Jesus Christ coming before his Father in heaven after the finished work of redemption. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. He took on human flesh. But he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. So when he was born, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So when he was born, he was fully God, fully man. Jesus lived a perfect life. Jesus Christ went to the cross and took the sins of the world upon himself, dying for your sins and my sins, taking the wrath of God that we deserve. And after Jesus died, he was buried. And early on the third day, early on Sunday morning, Jesus Christ rose from the grave. He defeated sin. He defeated death. And now, now in this vision... Coming on the clouds, he's returning to his father. And he's returning saying, I've been victorious. I've defeated sin. I've defeated death. I believe this is alluded to in Hebrews chapter 9. When it says, when Jesus Christ ascended back to the father, he went into the heavenly holy of holies. The earthly holy of holies was a a pattern, a type of the heavenly holy of holies. And Jesus Christ goes into the, the heavenly holy of holies. The very presence of the living God, not with the blood of bulls and goats and calves. He goes in the presence of the one true God with his own blood as the great high priest. And he comes before the Father, the Ancient of Days, as if to say, I have won the victory. That's what's happening here in Daniel chapter 7. So what's God's response? What's God's response to the finished work of redemption? What's God's response to the obedient life and death of Jesus? It says there, To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. We shall not pass away. His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. He gives him an eternal, unshakable kingdom as a reward for his redemptive work. I believe that what Daniel sees in this vision is the playing out of Philippians chapter 2. Stay with me. Philippians chapter 2 says that that Jesus humbled himself, taking on human flesh, taking on the form of a servant. He laid aside the, the prerogatives of deity, the rights of deity, and took on humanity whereby he would suffer and experience frailty and weakness and eventually be crucified to a cruel Roman cross. But it says in Philippians 2 that he was obedient to the point of death, Even death on a cross. Therefore, the Bible says, because of his finished work, because of his perfect obedience to the Father, therefore God, the Ancient of Days, has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what's happening here. This is Philippians 2 in picture form. Daniel sees this moment where the Son of Man comes on the clouds and the Father, the Ancient of Days, says, Here's your kingdom. Here's your kingdom. 
And then, at some point, Jesus will come back on the clouds. And he'll usher in his eternal kingdom. But what we learn today is this. This world, this human history that seems so chaotic, it's all heading somewhere. You say, Pastor Wade, where's, where is human history headed? Where's the, the great cruise ship of history headed? Where will it end up? At the feet of King Jesus, where every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One of my ministry heroes, Adrian Rogers, said this all the time. You ask, what's this world coming to? It's coming to Jesus. That's where things are headed. So what's the application for all of us in this room? We look around, we see wars, rumors and wars of wars, uncertainty, fear, anxiety, chaos. We live in this great sea of, of raging wind and waves. We can rest confidently in the sovereign hands of God, knowing that He is overseeing it all. And when the dust settles on human history, when it's all said and done, it will all culminate at the feet of King Jesus. That's where human history is headed. And let me say this to you. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Christ, you're not saved, you're not born again, you don't have that nailed down where you'll spend eternity, I want you to understand as we study this passage, becoming a Christian is not about just choosing some religious option. Say, oh, I've evaluated the Hindus and the Buddhists and uh, the Jews and the, the Muslims. And, I, you know, I, I think I like this version. It, it, it's, it speaks to me more than the other. I'm just going to choose Jesus out of a, a, a plethora of other options. That's not what it means to become a Christian. Becoming a Christian means you have chosen to follow the one that human history is all about. When it's all said and done, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. So you have a choice. Here's your choice. You can choose to worship Jesus now and follow Jesus now, or you can be lost and experience the judgment of God. But even at that moment, your knee will bow and your tongue will confess. There's an old worship song that goes like this. One day every tongue will confess you are God. One day every knee will bow. But still the greatest treasure remains for those who choose you now. Why would you wait to follow and believe in and worship this Savior? The King the one to whom human history is headed toward. Why would you choose to wait? Worship him now. He's worthy of your worship. He's worthy of your life. And by the way, he'll forgive you of all your sins and transform you from the inside out. Amen? Choose Jesus today.
Thank you for listening. We pray you've been encouraged and inspired by God's Word. May the Lord richly bless you.